Well, now we know we have Star Wars fans. I still like Star Wars, although I am um, beginning to realize my age as my taste in TV shows changes. What I used to find uh, boring back in the day that my mom would watch, I now love to watch. Uh, one of those is the antique shows on TV, the antique road shows. You know, maybe it's me getting older. Maybe it's just better taste. But I, I, I can tell I'm getting older But when, when I'm enjoying these, these shows. Antique Roadshow. It's been out for a while. It was out when I was younger. Um, it's this show where people bring antiques to, a, um, to the roadshow, and people will give them appraisals, tell them about what they have. Well, there was an episode from a year or so ago where a, a South Carolina woman, automatically I liked it, right? They were in South Carolina. She brought an old letter that had been passed down to her uh, from her father who had acquired it many years earlier. Not sure how he acquired it. He may have found it in an old desk that he purchased. But it was a personal letter that had been written by Abraham Lincoln, dated June 18th of 1860. This is just a few months before he became president. Now, as you can imagine... Uh, this letter to this South Carolina woman, it was a valuable letter. It was meaningful to her. But it became even more so when she learned the history behind the letter. See, not only was it authentic, but the appraiser explained to her the background of the letter. She learned it was written by a man called William Jones, which was Lincoln's first employer and really a mentor uh, to Lincoln. It was from... William Jones's library that Abraham Lincoln first began to read about American history. And it was from those books and those conversations with this man uh, that he first became interested in politics. And so this, this gentleman was instrumental in the life of Abraham Lincoln, as, as we all know, uh, the whole course of history. And, and even more than that, she learned it wasn't just valued at a few hundred dollars, but uh, tens of thousands of dollars. So when she learned the background of the letter, it instantly became richer to her in meaning and in value. That's what happens when we get the background. Letters become to us more meaningful and more valuable and more interesting and more engaging when we understand the backstory. And today we're going to begin a series of sermons through two letters written by the Apostle Paul I mean, some 2,000 years ago, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. And I've entitled this series, Longing and Living for Jesus. And we'll, we'll come in a bit to see why we are titling it that. But as we come to these two very old letters, written just two millennia ago virtually, I want to begin by giving you the backstory as it's recorded for us in the book of Acts, it's marvelous how we don't just get these two letters, as valuable as they are in themselves, we can actually go and see the history of how the church was founded, about what the makeup of the church is like, about what God was doing in and through these people at that time, which gave rise to these letters that we're going to be spending a lot of time in in the weeks and months to come. So there's two places I want you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. The first place is to 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll find that on page 986 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. You just put your finger there, because the other place we'll, we'll be spending the majority of the time is in Acts chapter 16. 
And you'll find that on page 924 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. So we're going to consider three things uh, from this sermon. The three things I want to look at with you, what we're going to call the, the backstory or the background of how the church in Thessalonica began. So how it all began. Secondly, we're going to look at what it's all about. We'll consider the content of the letter. What was it, historically, that gave rise to these letters? Because Paul is writing into a situation. There are things ongoing in this church that Paul is addressing. So we'll look at the content, what it's all about. But then I want to come to the uh, where the rubber hits the road for us. Uh, why does it all matter? For us in this room, for this week and in the weeks to come, what's the relevance uh, for these letters written some 2,000 years ago to a church halfway across the world. So, how it all began, what it's all about, and why it all matters. Let's begin by going back to Acts 16. Let's look at the story of how it began for the church in Thessalonica. And we see in chapter 16 that the founding of the church in Thessalonica began on Paul's second missionary journey. Now, if you remember the book of Acts, Paul had three missionary journeys. He had already completed the first journey, and the book of Acts in in chapter 15 uh, concludes with what we call the Jerusalem Council. Uh, The elders from different churches, including the apostles, had come together, and those are those decisions that were passed down to the churches that Paul took with him on this second missionary journey. But we learn at the end of chapter 15, that there was something of a falling out between Paul and Barnabas, who had been his companion on the first missionary journey. So Barnabas ended up taking uh, John Mark, and he went on his way to Cyprus. Uh, But Paul ended up taking Silas, and Paul and Silas arrived at uh, Derbe and Lystra, and they pick up Timothy. So if you recall, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, the letter was from Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's, these are the characters that we read of in this backstory. And together, they went about strengthening the churches in this area. And after that, they had intended to go on to Asia, but we read in this passage that somehow, we don't know how, but the Holy Spirit prevented them from going forward with their plans. The Holy Spirit had other plans. He had better plans for the apostles. And so they ended up going to a city called Troas, where the Lord gave Paul this vision, which is commonly referred to as the Macedonian call. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 here in chapter 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And here's the vision. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So that's where they went, this place called Macedonia. Well, where is Macedonia? Well, it's in northern Greece. And there were the cities of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and others that were in that region that Paul went on this second missionary journey with Silas and Timothy and their goal was to go and help them. But what did it mean to help them? 
You see the Macedonian man saying, come and help us. Well, what is the need of this region? What's the fundamental need that these people have? Well, look at it, verse 10. We sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, that was the essence of the help that the Macedonians needed. God could have called them to do any number of things. I'm sure there were lots of needs in Macedonia at the time. There's lots of needs in every age, right? But what is the fundamental need that the Macedonians had and that we have in this world? And and we're told here, we need the good news of how we can be reconciled to an all-holy God. That's the fundamental need in Macedonia. And so that's the message that Paul and his companions took to that region. And we know that God blessed it. He blessed it in Philippi. You can read about that in verses 11 through 40 here in chapter 16. We also have a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians and we learn more about how God honored that call. But what we're going to be focusing on is how God honored that call in Thessalonica. So turn with me to Acts 17. I want to note three things in the backstory here from these verses. Three things. First of all, the makeup of the church. Look at verse 4. We learn from this verse that the makeup of the church, who received the gospel, right? So they go and they proclaim the gospel in Thessalonica. They go to the synagogue where they typically went. Now, who received it? Whose lives got changed? Well, we read in verse 4 that there were some Jews, but then there were a great many devout Greeks. Those were probably Gentiles that were loosely affiliated with the Jewish faith. They probably attended synagogue regularly. They were coming as, um, as inquirers, if you will. Uh, but there were a great many of these devout Greeks. And not a few, which is another way of just saying several, or a significant number of, Leading women. And we also know, whenever we look at the, book, or the, uh, the letter of the Thessalonians, that there were a, a good number of unchurched Gentiles there as well. See, he went to the synagogues on the Sabbath days, but that's not all he did. It's not like he sat around the, the other days of the week. Now, he was in and through the community. He was going to and fro, sharing the gospel together with his companions. And we learn that a number of people who didn't attend the synagogue would have become believers as well. Listen listen to how Paul describes uh, the church in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Probably referring to those who were unchurched in that community. So this is very much a mixed group of Christians. You've got some Jews. You've got a lot more Gentiles. Some people are mature in the faith. Some people are just brand new Christians. However, what was common among all of them was what they were experiencing. Look at verses 5 through 9. This church in Thessalonica was under persecution. We see that some of the Jews opposed the success that God was giving to the gospel. We read about that in verses 5 and 6. These religious leaders 
in the synagogues saw the gospel coming in and they saw the gospel taking root in the lives of people and what was happening is their grip, their, their religious power and influence was threatened. And they were willing to do whatever they could to get it back. Including persecuting these new believers. Which they did in a variety of ways. We see them persecuting the Christians physically in Thessalonica. Verse 6, they dragged Jason and the others out of their houses. They were persecuting them legally. They were trying to get them in trouble with the authorities. With false accusations in verse 7. Saying that they were acting against the decrees of Caesar. They were persecuting them financially as well. Look at verse 9. They had taken a security from Jason and the rest. They were taking money from them. All of these believers were experiencing some form of persecution, opposition to what God was doing there in Thessalonica. And because of the persecution, Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city prematurely. We see that in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They weren't even allowed to stay there. It was so bad. And of course, we we kept reading, remember, that these Jews who were opposing gospel growth in Thessalonica followed Paul and Silas. They went to Berea and kept causing trouble and kept driving them further and further away. But I just, I love the book of Acts. Because despite the best efforts of Satan and human beings on this earth, God just takes that and he turns it for good. People got born again in Berea. People were then getting born again in Athens. And so the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell could not stand against the church is seen true in these verses. It's just marvelous. Just read these sometimes and just be encouraged about Jesus who keeps His promises and about how nothing can stop His purposes in this world and and even in our own lives. So there was, there was a mixed congregation. They were under persecution. But we also learn in verse 10 that there was an unfinished church plant. It would be like if we at Zion decided to plant a church, say, somewhere in Uganda. Now, there are a lot of churches in Uganda. But say we found an area that hadn't heard the gospel. We start planting that church. We've got our missionary on the ground. And then, boom... Persecution arises and they have to get out. Not by choice, but they're forced out. Can you imagine how devastating that would be to hear that, right? Here the the gospel is beginning to take root. This church plan is getting started. Things are going well. And then, boom, in in mid-motion, it's just hindered. There's an unfinished work in this church. Now, we don't know exactly how long Paul was with the Thessalonians, but probably not for more than a few weeks. He was forced to leave, heading to Berea and Athens and eventually to Corinth. It's actually from Corinth that Paul wrote the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. So as a result, because the, the work was unfinished, you've got this church who's young, they're under persecution, they're in need of leadership, They're in need of instruction. This church is in need of hope. Now the last thing Paul wanted to do was leave, but he just simply didn't have another choice. Listen to how he put it in the letter of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2, 17 and 18. Paul said, 
Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So he wasn't able to get there in person, is his point. But he was able to get Timothy there. And we read about that in chapter 3. Listen to Timothy's report. Paul sent Timothy to check on the health and well-being of this church that he was torn away from. And Timothy made it there. Again, we don't know how long he was there, but it was long enough to put some things in order, to minister to the local church, and to bring back to Paul a report of how things were going. So here's the report that Timothy brought back to Paul that we read of in 1 Thessalonians 3. Here's what what we read. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, these persecutions they were experiencing. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. But now that Timothy's come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And he goes on. So Paul received a good word that despite Satan's opposition... Jesus was king in Thessalonica. See, that the, the Jews got it half right. The message of the gospel was about King Jesus. And you don't mess with that king. Because he is king over the universe. And he had a purpose and a plan for this church. And despite the persecutions which we read, and we'll, we'll learn more about, the, he was even sovereign over that. He was focused on blessing his elect in in Thessalonica. And that's exactly what he did. Timothy reported the good news. They were still there. They were growing. But they weren't without needs. He also reported a number of concerns that were ongoing in the Thessalonian church. And it, it was out of Paul's pastoral concern for these believers that he writes these two letters. So that's the backstory. That's how it all began in Thessalonica. That's the purpose for which we have these two letters. But now let's just take a moment and let's do the 30,000 feet view of these two letters. Let's take a look at the, the content of them. Let's see what it's all about in these letters. I think we can sum up the content of these two letters in two words, actually more than two words, but uh, longing and living for Jesus. Longing and living, but longing and living for King Jesus. Paul's intention was to deepen the believers in their longings for Christ and to exhort them in faithful living for Christ. Hence the title of the series, Longing and Living for Christ. So let's, let's take a brief look at each of these. First of all, what is the, 
How does the content of these two letters aim to cultivate a deeper delight in and longing for Christ? How does Paul do it? That's his aim. He wants this church to go deep in their delight for Christ. So how does Paul do that? How do you get at the heart of a Christian church? Well, Paul does it by way of doctrine. See, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians celebrates the truth that there is no conflict between doctrine and delight. In fact, Paul's going to argue that deep doctrine is what creates deep longings for Jesus. So, what are some of the doctrinal concerns that Paul addresses in this book? Well, there are a number of them. He talks about God's sovereignty over suffering. He talks about God's sovereignty in salvation. He talks about election and perseverance in this, these letters. He talks about the mission of the church. He talks about church leadership. He talks about the doctrine of sanctification and so on. Paul is going deep with this young church doctrinally. He's not shying away from theological precision and depth with even such a young church. But by far the biggest doctrinal focus in these two letters is what we call eschatology, which is a $10 word uh, just meaning end times, end times views, a view of last things. The word eschatos in Greek means last. So eschatology is the study of last things. We're going to say that word a number of times in the weeks to come. So uh, eschatology is the study of end times, the study of last things. And that is, by and large, the biggest doctrinal focus in these books. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. And the first most basic reason was that there were a number of questions in Thessalonica about the end times. Uh, They were asking about um, what happens to believers if they die before Jesus returns? What happens to us after we die, period? Why is it that Jesus hasn't returned yet? Why are we being persecuted? These are real pastoral questions that these believers were asking. But second... Paul was seeking to deepen their understanding of eschatology, of the study of last things, in order to cultivate a deeper hope in and longing for Christ. Have you ever heard the expression, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good? Have you ever heard that expression before? Well, Paul here is is warning of just the opposite. Paul is saying that we will be of no earthly good if we aren't purposefully and intently heavenly minded. See, the more we learn and understand what awaits us in Christ, the more we will long for Him here and now, right? That's why Christmas time for children is so hard to wait on. They know what's awaiting them, right? Well, brothers and sisters, the more we see, listen, the more you see of what awaits you in heaven with Christ, the more you're going to want that. The more you will long for Christ. 
And in turn, the more you long for him, the more you're going to be living for him. That's the point. We must be heavenly minded if we're going to be of any earthly good. Let me just give you an illustration of this. We talked about the how children approach Christmas. Adults do the same thing. I remember a number of years ago, my wife would travel to the Carolinas. I had very few vacation days. And so frequently in the summer, my wife and the children, they would go to the Carolinas and spend some time with family. I'd stay back and I'd be working. I'd be uh, going to seminary, doing a number of other things. And, And I remember those times when she would be gone, how I would just be longing for her to return. Now what I was doing during those times was because I longed for her to return, I was just motivated to be laboring for her. So I tried to get the schoolwork done. I tried to get the papers written. I didn't always succeed at that. Frequently didn't succeed at that. But I tried. I labored to get those things done. I was working hard in the vocation that God had called me to. I was putting things in order in the house, making sure things were clean, making sure things were in order so that when she got back, there would be nothing to keep us from being able to spend time together. When you long for someone, when you long to see someone, it's not hard to be laboring for that person. Do you see? It's not sheer duty any longer. There's deep delight in living for that person and laboring for them. The more we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the more we will be living for Him, for His glory here and now. So we're learning about Jesus so that we would be longing for Him, so that we would be living for Him. And that's what Paul instructs or exhorts the Thessalonians uh, to do in these two letters in a number of ways. So let's just take an overview of some of the things that Paul addresses as he exhorts the Christians in Thessalonica to be living for Christ. He says that they should be living for Christ in the way that they evangelize. Even in the midst of persecution, in the ways that they should be advancing the gospel of Jesus. He exhorts them to godly living in their love for the, for the brethren. And the ways that they love one another. He exhorts them in perseverance in the midst of persecution. He exhorts them to sexual purity. He exhorts them to a godly work ethic. He exhorts them in church discipline. We could just keep going on and on and on. The various ways Paul exhorts these believers to do something with these longings they have for Christ. Paul is at all interested in creating armchair theologians in Thessalonica. He wants the Thessalonians not only to learn about Christ, but to be doing something with what they're learning. To be putting it into practice. There's no conflict between learning and living. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we want to be a a doing church. We don't want to just be a a head-centered church. Paul doesn't understand that distinction. You don't get at the heart unless you go through the head. And you don't get at the life until you go through the heart. So Paul's putting this all together. That's what 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are all about. Now here's the question. 
Why does it all matter to us in this room? Right? So far, this is great for the first century Thessalonians. But how do these letters written 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world, how does that apply in 21st century Weinsberg? Right? Because I'm sure there are a number of issues they were facing that we're not facing. Questions they had that we don't necessarily have. So what does this have to do with us? Why does it all matter here at Zion? Well, first of all, these doctrines, these truths that Paul gives to the Thessalonians isn't just true for them. The the, the exhortations that Paul gives to godly living isn't just something the Thessalonians need to obey. It's not just that they need to be pursuing sexual purity and just they need to be pursuing a godly work ethic and so on. These are universals applicable for all churches in all places across all times. These letters were written as much to us in 21st century Weinsberg as it was to the Thessalonians in 1st century Macedonia. But that said, I I think these letters in particular are very applicable to us as a church at this point in Zion's history. Remember, when the Apostle Paul first wrote these letters... He had only known this church for a short time, maybe as, as, as little as a few weeks. And I'm just astounded at, at how he does this and how he addresses them. He doesn't know everybody there. He probably knows them by face, perhaps by name, but he doesn't know their backgrounds. I mean, he doesn't know their lives. He hasn't been shepherding them for years. He's only known them for a few weeks. He was right in the middle of planting this church and he gets torn away. And while he addresses some of the known issues, there's, there's a range of concerns, I'm sure, that the Thessalonians had Paul wasn't aware of. And so, at the outset of our new pastoral relationship, and as I was praying about this and asking the Lord to, to guide me and where we should begin, it, it made a lot of sense to begin where Paul would begin. Because God willing, in the weeks and months and years to come, we'll be getting to know each other a lot better. You'll be knowing my strengths and my many weaknesses. And and likewise, I'll be learning more about you and what God is doing in your lives and what would be most appropriate from God's word to focus on as a church. But at the outset, I just don't know those things. And I just find it remarkable how Paul writes this letter and it's as if he's writing it just to cover the whole gamut. And so as we begin this new pastoral relationship, what better way to begin than First and Second Thessalonians? But even besides that, First and Second Thessalonians covers things that all of us in this room are dealing with in some way. We all need to hear Paul's instructions and exhortations from these books. Let me just, let me give you a few things here. We may have heard this time and again, but we need to hear it afresh. Because Paul deals with questions like this. What gets you through persecution for being a Christian? You may not get dragged out of your house this week, but you may miss a promotion. Or you may, you may receive mocking from somebody. You're going to be persecuted in some way, and how do you deal with that as a Christian? What gets you through the grief and the sorrow of losing a loved one? How do you deal with the depression that sets in 
that so often accompanies loss? What is it that motivates your growth as a Christian, that helps you put off lifestyles and patterns of behavior that you know aren't pleasing to God and putting on those things that God calls us to? What gets you from those spiritual slumps to spiritual vitality? How do you get from being disinterested and unmotivated in the things of God? How do you get from just wanting to grow spiritually to actually growing spiritually? The big question, what gives you purpose to keep going in this life when I'm sure many of us just just kind of feel like giving it up? Friends, Paul addresses all of this in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You don't have to be a Thessalonian to have those questions. And so as we come in the weeks to come, we're going to consider those. We're going to see Paul's answer to them. And with God's help, with these inspired letters, God would be using these truths to be working in and through us. So three things I want to ask you to do as we endeavor to receive this from God. Three things. Number one, would you pray for this series? Without God's help, this is really useless. And I mean that. I mean, what a waste of time to do all of this if God isn't the one working in and through us. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians, are we going to continue on by the flesh if we began by the Spirit? Would you pray that God would be blessing this series? And would you prepare for it? So be reading these letters. Be meditating on them on the weeks that go by. Be studying them. You can even maybe take up... uh, the, the task of memorizing them. Not just as a task, but as an endeavor for the glory of God. Be getting into the Word, stirring up with these letters your own longings for Christ. So that you'll be living for Christ. So be praying about this, be preparing for this. But the, here's the last point. Would you be proclaiming the good news that you're hearing? Proclaiming it in your families? Encouraging one another as a church with these truths? But friends, there are people in our own community, there are people in your sphere of influence that God is calling you to get at with the gospel that others can't. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody who's been away from the church for some time. Would you be proclaiming this, inviting people to come and hear the gospel and taking the gospel to them yourselves? That is a huge focus in First and Second Thessalonians. And I want to encourage us to be about that in the weeks and the months ahead. Well, it's our prayer that God would use this series to deepen our longings for Christ so that we would be more delighted in Him and that we would be living more faithfully for His glory, for our joy, and for the advance in the gospel here at Zion and throughout our community. Let's pray for that now. Father, that is our prayer. We do ask that you would be using these truths, these exhortations, uh, all of this instruction, all of the wealth of gold that we're going to be mining in the weeks and months to come from these two letters, that you would be showing us more of what awaits us in heaven. And oh, how it's worth giving up the things of this earth to have that. 
And that Jesus would be seen for all that He's worth in our hearts here and that that would be spreading through this community and, Lord, to the ends of the earth. So bless us as we seek to hear You speak to us and to receive from You the grace that is only found in Christ. And we pray in His name alone. Amen.